Romans chapter number 5. For the past two weeks, we have uh, preached out of the fifth chapter, the book of Romans on Sunday mornings, and we have been examining the topic of grace. Paul begins to unveil to us the superlative nature of the grace of God. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, it's summed up in a little phrase that Paul uses five separate times when he says about the grace of God that it is a much more type of thing. In fact, look at it with me. It says down in uh, verse number 9, "...much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him." Uh, Verse number 10 says, "...for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by His life." Look down at verse 15. It says this, "...but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God, and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, hath abounded." Unto many. Verse 16 says this, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Then look down in verse 20. I like this. It says, Moreover the law entered, that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. On five separate occasions, Paul uses this terminology, and he is conveying to us that whatever the law could do, uh, grace could do much more. Whatever sin did, grace can do much more. You see, grace is a much more uh, matter of thing. And uh, he is conveying this truth to us all through chapter number 5. He's going to begin in chapter number 6 to talk about the walk of grace. But in chapter 5, he's talking about the superlative nature of God's grace. And I want to preach to you from uh, chapters uh, verses 12 through 15 this morning. And I want to preach on this thought. We talked the first week about the much more of the sacrifice of grace. We talked last week about the much more of the security of grace. Let me say this. Even if I could be saved by good works, I wouldn't want to be saved by good works. Because uh, to be saved by good works would be a very flimsy and a very fickle salvation. But I'm saved this morning by the grace of God, and God's grace is unchanging. I want you to notice with me that Paul begins to deal with the much more of the scope of the grace of God. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, who does God's grace deal with? Let's read verses 12 through 15, and then we'll pray. The Word of God says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us. I pray that you'd give clarity to my thoughts and clarity to my words this morning. Lord, that I'd be a fit vessel of the Holy Ghost to do the preaching of your word, and that he with much power and much influence would speak to the hearts of your people. Lord, I love you this morning, and I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Now, as you read this passage of Scripture, I'm going to confess to you that the language is maybe a little bit unfamiliar to us. You know, I found this to be true, that so often we, we, we read through the Word of God without ever reading the Word of God. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, one of the blessed things about uh, our English language is that we have punctuation. We have grammatical rules. We have things that guide us and teach us to the understanding of a passage. And as I've read this portion of Scripture in chapter number 5, I will confess to you that I have found the language a little unwieldy at times. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, sometimes it's just kind of tough to get my head around what God was saying here. But I found this to be true as I studied through this passage, that there is a very important element that most people don't notice, that if you'll notice, it'll clarify a lot of things for you. And it's found in verse number 13. Or maybe I should say this, it's found before verse number 13 and after verse number 12. And it's a little mark that in the English language we call the parentheses. You'll find it begins at the beginning of verse number 13, and it goes to the end of verse number 17. Now, that denotes what we've read this morning as part of what we call a parenthetical statement. You say, preacher, what does that mean to you and me today? Well, it means that God is telling us something. Right in the middle of telling us something, He wants to pause for a minute to clarify something to you and me. But as you read these verses of Scripture, you'll find one unbroken thought from verses 12 to verse 18. In fact, let's read those two verses together. It says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. You'll notice the usage of those two words, as and so, in this portion of Scripture. It denotes a similitude. It denotes a picture or what theologians would call typology. Now, if you've been around here any amount of time, you know we talk about typology a lot. We like typology in Scripture around here. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? I mean, we like Old Testament pictures of the New Testament grace of God. We like it when God gives us a little hint in the Old Testament about something He was getting ready to do in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll find them all through the Old Testament. You'll find that Moses was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says a prophet like unto Moses would be raised up. You'll find uh, that, uh, that, uh, that Isaac was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ as a submissive and obedient son. Not only in the persons, but you'll find them in the events that take place when Samson carries away the gates of the city. It's a beautiful picture of how our Lord Jesus conquered death for you and I, Uh, not only in the places and instances, but sometimes with the items that are used. For instance, the sacrifices in the Old Testament picture for us the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament tabernacle foreshadowed uh, the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all these things were given in the Old Testament to paint a picture, to give us a shadow of New Testament truths to come. Well, included in these, Paul reveals to us here, is the person of the first man goes by the name of Adam. Adam is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a type in a lot of ways. Let me say that in his, uh, in his relationship to his bride, he is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ain't got time to preach all of us. You hang with me. We'll go through it real quick. Amen. But uh, do you know that uh, Eve may have been deceived, but Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Eve ate of the fruit. 
And humanity was not spiraled into depravity when Eve ate of the fruit. Only Eve was spiraled into depravity when Eve ate of the fruit. Adam was the federal head of humanity, and Paul deals with that in verse 12. We'll talk about it here in a minute. But Adam, when he saw that his bride had been deceived, that she had partaken of the fruit, uh, that she had spiraled into iniquity, Adam, in love, and I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to make excuses, and I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture of Adam. Somebody say amen to that. But Adam knew what he was doing. And he chose to eat of the fruit that he might have fellowship with his fallen wife. What a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and I. The church is described as a Christ's bride. And he willingly partook of death and he became sin for you and I that he might redeem us unto himself, that there might be fellowship and communion with him. But not only in his relationship do we see that Adam is a type of Christ, but we find that in his role in humanity he is a type of Christ. That's what Paul's dealing with here. Uh, He begins to reveal this to us in verses 12 and 18. But why the parenthetical statement? Well, here's why. Because God is saying, I want you to look at Adam, because Adam is a type of Christ. But he pauses for a moment and he says, now I understand that he was not in every way a type of Christ. But even the ways that he was not a type of Christ pointed to a truth concerning Now, I understand. You better get your waders on. This is going to be a little bit deeper this morning, okay? It's what we call type and anti-type. Adam is the type. Christ is the anti-type. Adam is the picture or the shadow. Christ is the realization. He is the real thing. And God wants to say, Adam and Christ are very similar. But, here are a few ways they are not similar And here's what those truths teach us. In fact, you'll find two kind of uh, confounding phrases used in verse number 15 and 16. And I want you to notice them. In verse 15 it says this, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. Now that, that sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Maybe a little unwieldy to you. It's almost like God is saying, Not as the offense, these things are different. So also is the free gift, but they're also the same. We might describe it this way, that these two things are different, but with a striking similarity. In verse 16, it said this way, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. In other words, God says this, Here it is not Adam and Christ that are types of each other, but rather it is the result of the actions of Adam and Christ. That are similar. Or we might say it this way. If in verse number 15 we're told that they're different, but with a striking similarity. In verse 16 we're told that they are similar, but with an important difference. And the substance of this parenthetical phrase will unveil to us much of the meaning of the passage that God is revealing to us. Now I want us to notice three things this morning. And I believe we'll have a better understanding of this passage. In verse number 12, God begins this discourse. And He begins with the story of depravity that took place. Notice what it says. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. This presents to us both legend and logic. Because it conveys to us an actual history that took place, but it is also based upon an irrefutable and unshakable logic based upon what we see around us today. If I was to give maybe a strict exegesis of this passage, I would say this, that Paul is looking at mankind that is plagued with death, and he points back to the cause 
which is man's sin in the garden. And he shows to us the origin of sin in humanity. How did it get here? Well, the Bible says, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. You know what that tells me? That tells me this, that humanity's problems are just that. It's humanity's problems. We live in a world today that wants to blame everything on circumstances. I mean, listen, somebody goes nuts, climbs up to a bell tower and starts popping off people with a rifle and it was because their mama didn't hug them enough. We live in a world today where somebody goes and abuses people or, you know, I mean, goes and, uh, you, you know, they, you know what they always say? They always say, they were so quiet. You ever hear them say that? That's why I'm as loud as I can possibly be. They won't come looking for me. Amen. They say he was so quiet. Next thing you know, he's got heads in his freezer, you know. And then, uh, then listen, some soft-bellied, secular, godless uh, psychiatrist will come along and say this. Say, well, it was because they didn't get hugged enough. It was because their math teacher told them they got the wrong answer. We live in a climate of blaming things on our circumstances. You see this in every facet of life, and of American life in particular. I mean, listen, what kind of sense does it make? Somebody walks into a Christmas party and shoots and kills 14 people. president gets on TV and says, we've got to get rid of guns. You know, I, I mean, listen, they're not, they're not crying for cars to be outlawed every time a drunk crosses the center line. Uh, the, they're, they're not calling, listen, they're not calling for, uh, for uh, you know, an all-out war on drugs every time somebody dies with a needle in their arm. But somehow we have grown accustomed to trying to blame things on our circumstances and on our environment. God gets to the very heart of the matter. You see, man was created in perfection and innocence. He was created in a perfect environment, in a perfect climate. Uh, unless he uh, lacked any direction living in that perfect climate, God walked with him in the cool of the day. But there in that perfect environment, with the perfect guidance, with the perfect job to do, man messed it up. God pointed at something said, don't eat of this fruit. And man said, well, that's the very fruit that I want. We see the origin of sin in humanity. Uh, Eve ate of the fruit, but it was not Eve's sin that caused man to spiral into depravity. Because it does not say, wherefore, as by one woman. It says, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world. And Adam is the federal head of humanity. When he partook of the fruit, all of mankind was plunged into iniquity with him. And what was the effect? We see the origin of sin, but we see the effect of sin. The Bible says this, and so death passed upon all men. Death by sin. Death by sin. If there was one thing that I could, uh, the, the, that I could imprint upon uh, your eyeballs for all of eternity, it would be this phrase, death by sin. The Bible says this, that lust when it hath conceived bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. The Bible says that the soul that sinneth, Ezekiel told us, it shall die. The Bible says uh, in the Old Testament that there's a way, the Proverbs writer said, that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Sin always leads to death. It did in the garden and it does today. And so death entered the world. Death was not an experiential part of humanity before this. But when man sinned, death came into the world. We notice not only uh, the effect of sin, but I want you to notice the extent of sin. What does it say? And so death passed upon what? All men. All men, for that all had sinned. Again, understand and see the logic that is being used by Paul. Paul is looking at the reality of death in the human experience and he is using logic to travel backwards to the place of the Garden of Eden. 
And he's saying this, we look around at a world plagued with death. Let me tell you something, until Jesus Christ comes back, despite our best efforts, the funeral home will never go out of business. The casket makers will always have more work ahead of them. The grave keepers will always have a job to do. Death is an intrinsic part of the human life. We all experience death. The Hebrews writer said this, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Paul looks around at a world covered in tombstones, and he says, All must have sinned, for all die. All die. So how did this take place? He points to the story of depravity, but he points to the sickness of humanity. He begins this parenthetical statement in verse number 13 because there's a question that must be asked. If a man began to die and experience death at the moment of Adam's sin, then how were men held accountable until the law came into the world? The law did not come into existence until many, 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 many years, about 2,000 years after the world began. And so what happened? Well, I want you to notice what Paul reveals to us in this passage. He gives us the story of depravity in verse 12. In verse 13, he gives us the sickness of humanity, and he discusses the presence of sin in the world. Now, I'm just trying, I'm trying to think of a good example how to say this right. You know how people say, what they know won't hurt them? You ever heard somebody say that? It's not true. <laughs> it's not true. You see, the reality is this. There were things that offended God before God ever told humanity that they offended Him. Sin is not the result of God laying down boundaries. Sin is the result of our rebellion. The law was given to show us what those boundaries are. And Paul reveals to us that just because the law had not been given, that didn't mean that sin was not present in the world. In fact, you see, even when there was not an Old Testament law, even before God ever thundered from Sinai, what happened when man was left unto his own devices? The first six chapters of the book of Genesis, do you realize they cover about 1,600 years of human history? But there's really not all that much for God to write about it. He basically spends the first three chapters saying, I created man in perfection. He spends chapter number three discussing how they fell into sin. And by the time you get three, chapters in 1600 years you know what God has to say about it he has to say that they did evil continually and the thoughts of their hearts were wicked continually man left unto himself always tends towards chaos and tends towards iniquity man's natural direction is down I know that's opposite the, the, the mentality and ideology and philosophy of the world. I, I know we live in a society that says that uh, if, uh, if everybody would just quit oppressing people, then they would automatically skyrocket to the top of the social and economic ladder. But the reality is this, that man's natural tendency is to go downward, and the only thing that can push him upward uh, is an on-head collision with the cross of Calvary, the only thing that can make a difference in a man's life. Listen to me, character can only take you so far. I know lots of folks that got a lot of good character still on their way to hell, and it doesn't take long for the pressures of life to begin to crumble their character and cause them to do things that they swore that they would never do. It's not what's on the outside that's going to make a difference in a man's life. It's what's born on the inside that'll make a difference in a man's life. And his natural tendency is down until God makes a difference. That's the direction that man goes. There was always a presence of sin. There was always a presence of sin in humanity. It did not begin when the law was given. See, that's the problem. We still have that mentality today. We still see God as the, as the long, gray-bearded, grandfatherly character that sets up on Sinai and tells us what we can't do. 
But the reality is that was never who God was. God was not sitting up on Sinai trying to put a damper on your parade. God's not sitting up in heaven trying to run and control your life. The reality is that apart from God, you are running your life. You're running it straight into the ground. And God's trying to get a hold of you before you do something you can't turn back on. God is expressing these things out of love and out of compassion. So God reveals these things. Listen, until the law, sin was in the world, but where there's no law, sin was not imputed. The giving of the law, even of itself, I want to be careful how I say this. I don't want you to misunderstand it. The giving of the law in and of itself was an act of love. Not a, uh, listen, not of control, but of love. Man was spiraling downward, and God had enough compassion and love upon him to show him where he was going wrong. But we see the power of sin. It says this, that uh, before the law, sin was in the world, but where there is no law, sin is not imputed. Nevertheless, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Let me tell you something. Death doesn't care whether you know better or not. Come on now. Death doesn't care whether you know better or not. Death doesn't care whether you've had as many advantages as somebody else. Let me tell you something. Death doesn't care. You die with a needle in your arm, death doesn't care whether you grew up in a Christian home or not. You die a drunkard's death, choking on your own vomit, death doesn't care whether you grew up in a Christian home or not. It doesn't matter what the level of revelation is in your life or illumination or enlightenment or whatever words you want to tack on to it. Death reigns until Christ breaks His chains. Death reigned. It didn't matter. It didn't matter that there was no law because we see the pollution of sin even over them which had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression who was the figure of him that was to come. In other words, it it was not just a matter of responsibility. It was a matter of pollution in humanity because Adam had sinned. All of humanity had missed the mark. You know, that really, when we talk about it, well, that's what we like to say. We like to talk about, you know, homardiology and, and, and missing the mark and that idea of what sin is, of, of the bullseye and throwing the dart. And I know you've heard it and I've heard it and everybody's heard it. And we apply that to the, to the individual, but why do we not apply that to the collective? You see, the reality was this. Humanity had already blown it. God had placed humanity in a perfect environment. They had chosen sin. There was a stain upon the record of humanity. Humanity had missed the mark. And therefore, death had a power over their life through the entrance of sin. And all of humanity was polluted as a result. This gives us an important truth. The important truth is this, that uh, we are not sinners because we sin. But we sin because we are sinners. You see, what God is revealing to us is that the sin nature is something that is inborn within a man and that is inherited through his lineage and through his heritage. Uh, Death passed upon all men. Why? Because we're born sinners. Adam, listen, Adam and Christ were the only two that were ever, and I don't like to use the term born, but you understand what I mean, that when Christ was incarnated and when Adam was created, neither of them were created with a sin nature or born. You understand what I mean. I don't mean that Christ is a created being. He was incarnated sinless and Adam was created sinless. One man spiraled humanity into depravity. Oh, but my friend, the other one brought man back from the brink of hell and despair and gave to him grace and everlasting life. Therein do we find the duality of this truth. 
And Paul is revealing to us that sin is inherited from our common father of Adam. We may look different, we may sound different, we may talk different, we may smell different, but at the end of the day, every single one of us has the common ancestor of Adam and Eve, and as a result, every one of us has a sin nature. You say, why didn't Christ? Because he was not born of an earthly father. He was born of a heavenly father. And so he took upon him the nature of his father, which was a heavenly nature. But you and I, uh, we've not been born uh, naturally speaking of a heavenly father. Uh, We've been born naturally speaking of an earthly father. And so we have a sin nature that is inborn within us. Paul is revealing and laying groundwork to our responsibility. In other words, can I put it this way? That's where Adam took you. That's where Adam took you. Say, but I didn't sin like Adam sinned. It doesn't matter. You're his descendant. I didn't do what Adam did. It doesn't matter if you didn't do what Adam did. Does death have power over you? Does death have power over you? There's not a single one of us that death, at least concerning the physical body, does not have a power over it. That is indicative of the fact that we are the descendants of Adam. So what is the answer? What is the answer? We see the story of depravity. We see the entrance of sin. We see the effect of sin. And we see the extent of sin. We see the uh, sickness of humanity. We see the presence of sin even when there was no law. We see the power of sin even though men were not aware that they were transgressing God's law uh, inasmuch as a law could be spoken of. And we see the pollution of sin even those that hadn't sinned in the way Adam had sinned. They were still sinners because they were born with a sin nature. But I'm thankful it doesn't end there. I'm thankful we can look forward to a much more Because we see the solution of Calvary. What could undo what Adam did? Well, what the first Adam did (laughs) could be undone by the second Adam. What the first man did could be overcome by what the second man did. And in verse 15, we have a much more given to us concerning this. I want you to notice in verse number 15, I like this. For if through the offense of one, many be dead. Now that's an established fact according to our text. There's no question that we all die. And if we all die, it's because we're all sinners. And if we're all sinners, it's because we're all the sons of Adam. So Adam has led us down the pathway of sin and of death. And because of that, many be dead. By the way, let me say this, that the term many is defined here in this portion of Scripture. Some would look to this and claim uh, that it is speaking only of those that are not part of the quote-unquote elect. Let me say this, uh, that I believe that we're elect if we've been born again, and I believe whosoever will can be born again. Once you've been born again, you absolutely are part of an elect and separated and special and sanctified group of people. Uh, But any and all may be born again. It's evidence that the term many is defined because in verse number 12, it says that all have sinned. All of sin. Death passed upon what? All men. And so the use of the term many in verse number 15 is not necessarily meant to categorize. It is meant to quantify what's been told here. In other words, it's saying many, 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 many were made dead by one man's actions. One man's actions was spread upon many. But listen to this. Much more the grace of God. And the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. I want you to notice the assessment of Calvary, beginning of the verse. What does God say about it? For if through the offense of one, many be dead. It's interesting because this shows to us that there are two ideas behind death. There is physical death, but there is spiritual death. Uh, Physical death is present because man partook of spiritual death. 
where spiritual death has been resolved, physical death may or may not take place. There's people that, uh, that, that I promise you, there's people died in the last year or two. They really thought they was going to live to see the Lord come back. It wasn't the will of God. God took them out of this world. Let me tell you something. I'm still looking for the Lord to come back. The old preachers used to say, I'm not looking for the undertaker. I'm looking for the upper taker. Amen. And uh, I don't say that often because every time I do, my mind goes to the quicker picker upper. I don't know why, but I'm carnal, so I don't get to say that a lot. I, would, I, I hope somebody in this room keeps a record of the ridiculous things I say when I preach. <laughs> I'd like to have a book of it one day. And some strange red beans and, and, and strawberry syrup, just strange things come out of this pulpit. But uh, I'm not looking for that undertaker. I'm looking for the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm looking for Christ to return at any moment. It's imminent. It's upon us. It's at the door. It could happen before we leave this place today could happen before we leave this place today. But should Christ tarry His coming, physical death will take place in our lives. But the spiritual death has been resolved through Jesus Christ. And the death that's being spoken of here is not just a physical death, but it is a spiritual death that took place when man sinned. His relationship with God was severed. His communion with God was broken. Uh, You remember when Christ was dying on Calvary and he asked this question, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, what an indicative phrase to use. God had forsaken him so that he might not forsake us. But that tells me this, that the lost sinner uh, was uh, concerning his relationship with God, concerning communion with God, except he come by Jesus Christ, then he certainly is a God-forsaken individual. For only through Christ can he come to the Father. Oh, but I'm glad that invitation is given to come unto the Father through Jesus Christ. What does the cross tell us? The cross tells us that all are dead. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. For we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. There, it is an absolutely indisputable scriptural fact that Christ died for all men. All men. Why did he do that? Because he assessed all men to be dead. There's not a single one of us that the cross of Christ is not an indictment upon us concerning our spiritual condition. That's part of the reason the cross is offensive to people. Uh, we were talking in Sunday school a little bit about this. You know, you stop and think about the message of the cross. The message of the cross on one side, it tells man that he's unable. It tells man that he's incapable, that his works are not good enough, that his attempts of righteousness are just filthy rags, and it condemns and indicts humanity. On the other side of the cross of Calvary, though, there's the truth that God loves us, that He sees value in us, that He cares for us supremely, that He loved us enough to send His Son to die for us. And man is so prideful that he would reject the message of God's love, that he might be offended at the message of man's inability. Because the cross tells us that none of us are able. None of us are able. Listen, if all it took was church membership, God would have just thundered from Sinai and said, join a church. If all it took was baptism, then God would have stopped with John the Baptist. Listen, if all it took was good works, then He would have sent the Pharisees to teach us how to live righteously. But none of those things could avail man's sin-sick nature. None of those things could undo what the first Adam did. The second Adam had to come and live in perfect sinless righteousness and die upon the cross of Calvary that those of us that are born of Adam's race, sons of sickness and sons of depravity, might find in His eternal sacrifice the redemption that can save our souls and justify us before an Almighty God. God. That was the assessment. The assessment says all are dead. 
I want you to notice not only in this passage we see the assessment of Calvary that all men are dead, but I want you to notice the answer of Calvary, much more the grace of God. Much more the grace of God. Man couldn't do it, but the grace of God could. Man couldn't do it, but the grace of God could. The first Adam, he couldn't do it, uh, but the second Adam, he could do it. Much more the grace of God, notice this, and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ. That's why it's necessary that it be a gift. Because, listen, even with it being a gift, men will reject it. Even with it being a gift, men will reject it. But it's just that. Listen, it's, it's not a contract. It, 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 it's, it's not even a covenant in as much as a covenant requires two uh, equal but opposite parties. It is a covenant in that God has entered a covenant with himself. But let me tell you something. I'm glad it's not just a covenant. I'm, I'm glad it's not just God keeps his end of the bargain and I'll keep my end of the bargain. Because God already tried that with humanity. He made a covenant on Sinai and man broke his end of the bargain. Man cast off the yoke of God's covenant. I'm glad it's not just a covenant. I'm glad it's not just a contract. I'm glad it is a commended love through the grace of God. Because that's the only thing that would help me. Listen, if it's about good works, you might as well count me out. Because I don't do a lot of good works. And my bad works far outweigh my good works. You might as well just count me out. But now if this is grace that you're talking about, you just sign me right up. Because that's what I need. I need a Savior that will save me because I can't save myself. I, I, listen, I need a God that will change me because I can't change myself. I, 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 need, I, I need a Messiah that will pay my debt because I'm bankrupt and I can't pay it myself. If you're telling me it's by the works of the law, then I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm run out. I ain't got no help. But if you'll tell me it's by the grace of God, then friend, that's something I'll sign up to because that's something that can make a difference in my life this morning. If it's by grace, then it's for me because I'm a sinner. And sinners need the grace of God. He didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but he came to call sinners. And he died upon their place. He took their death. And the Bible says this, that he, through death, defeated him that had the power over death. The book of Acts says he was not holding of it, not able to be holding of death. He died upon the cross of Calvary in your place and in my place. You say, that wasn't my place. Oh, yes, it was. Yes, son of Adam, daughter of Eve, that was your place. You belonged on that cross. You belonged on that cross, just like I belonged on that cross. But he died the death of despair for me, that I might not have to die. We see the answer of Calvary, but then I want you to notice the achievement of Calvary. This grace hath abounded unto many. Now again, this use of this term, many, is not characteristic, it's quantitative. It's not necessarily to show us that there's some special little group of people and there's a lot of them. And those, because you know what I found? I found this to be true. When you get to talking to Calvinists, uh, they would claim that it's not many. It's not just they wouldn't, they wouldn't own up to it being all. Most of them wouldn't even claim it's many. They claim it's a special little group of their people that meet in their coffee shop with their skinny jeans and their glasses and read their John MacArthur books and they've got everything squared away and they've got a piece of knowledge that you don't know nothing about. They sit around, they read Francis of Assisi and they read St. Augustine. They don't even know the heresy that they're pouring into their mind. Listen, you don't become a Calvinist by reading the Bible. You become a Calvinist by reading other Calvinists. And they think they've got a little small group that nobody knows about. But the grace of God, it's abounded unto many. 
unto many. But it's not just given as a characteristic. It's not given to, uh, to denote a small little group or even a large group of people, but it is a quantitative statement. In other words, God is revealing to us that, that the same many <laughs> that Adam spiraled into depravity, that's the same many that the grace of God is extended unto. And, and, and who is that many? All have sinned. Death has passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And therefore the grace of God has been revealed unto all. Unto all. Let me tell you something. You say, who did Christ die for? He died for those that needed dying for. You say, preacher, I needed dying for. Then you're the person that Christ died for. He tasted death for every man. Not just for a few men. Not just for some men. He tasted death for every man. That every man, if they'd come unto him... Now, God knows not everybody's going to come to him. But any that come to him, he will in no wise cast out. And so, as you sit here this morning, let me just say this, that the scope of man's depravity is far outweighed by the scope of the grace of Calvary. And the grace of God is upon all men that will come unto him. You know how Paul said it? He said he's the Savior of all men, especially of them that believe. In other words, he can be anybody's Savior. He's only the Savior of those that will come unto him and uh, ask him to forgive them and save them. But he's the, he's the only Savior there is. And he can save all men if they'll come unto him. And that means you this morning. If you're here without the grace of God, the grace of God is extended unto you this morning. What will you do with it? Will you push it away because you don't want to admit that you can't do it yourself? Or will you embrace it as the love of God commended to you while you're a sinner, that God loves you and that He died in your place on Calvary?